a city that, you know, is really livable and really vibrant has opportunities for all of those accidental meetups because it really builds that, not, not just a connection with people that you know, but also connection with people that you don't know. From this to this. This is Livable City, a regular podcast guiding us on a journey to more human places. I'm your host, Jim Hodap. I'm excited you're here to learn, to listen, and to lead. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Livable City. I'm Jim Hodap, your regular host here on Livable City. I'm really excited for today's guests, yes, guests plural. But before we get there, I just wanted to do a little bit of reflecting on why and where we've come from and why I even created Livable City in the first place. So back in episode two, I talked a little bit about my own journey, why I created Livable City, where I'd come from, what influenced me, stuff like that. So now I want to reflect just a little bit more before I introduce today's guests, because I think it's really important to know why we're here, what we're doing, why you listen to Livable City, and what we can accomplish together. So the idea for Liberal City has been brewing for quite some time, but really the idea came to fruition fully when I was in Vancouver this past summer over the 4th of July, and I was touring the city with two of my good friends. It is such a beautiful city to tour, and if you've never been to Vancouver, I highly recommend it. But one evening I was just walking around with my earbuds in, listening to some of my favorite podcasts and music, and I was just taken by the city. I hadn't really been doing any kind of advocacy work because I still felt too new in Chicago and I felt like I didn't know enough people yet to get started. But I think the format of podcasts is an amazing one. I listen to a lot of podcasts myself and I find many of them to be inspiring. They really get me thinking about things. They really get into the nuance of things. And I thought I could try and do something similar to the area of really advocating for your city, how to do it, really how to dive in in some hopefully some ways that other people aren't doing things yet. But I'm also pretty entrepreneurial, so I just wanted to try something, something on the side, something that wouldn't necessarily generate income, but yet something so important that I still had to do it. So I knew that I wanted to get into advocacy and, and talk about that, but I didn't quite yet know just how I wanted to help other people get into advocacy. So I knew certainly that having some guests on would provide for some pretty interesting conversations that hopefully were inspiring. But I didn't quite plan on this idea of, you know, really helping all of you figure out and be inspired to advocate and to get involved in your neighborhood through both experts and non-experts alike. But this is what it's morphed into. It's a journey to help all of us get out of our head and get into action. Yes, we need to do some thinking. Yes, we need to be intentional. But most of all, we need to get out there and try different things and stop waiting for our leaders to do everything. Stop complaining on social media. And most of all, get to know one another and not be afraid of failure. Look at it this way. If you don't try, you've already failed. So what do you have to lose? And it definitely gets easier with help from other people. So get out there and get to know each other and start making your neighborhoods better. Okay, so my guests today I'm really excited about. You're probably familiar with them, and if you're not, then I think you've been hiding under a rock. But they are Chris and Melissa Bruntlett. They're originally from Vancouver. Yes, the same city that inspired me. But they live in the Netherlands now with their kids, and they live the Dutch cycling lifestyle, really focusing on trying to get this message of what it's like to live in 
in a whole country pretty much designed around the pedestrian, the cyclist, and getting around at that scale instead of cars. And they document through some amazing social media work and a book that they've written, which I'll, I'll link to in the show notes, how this affects daily life, how it's changed them, what drew them to move thousands of miles away to the Netherlands and to start a new amazing journey in the Netherlands as a family. So Chris is a marketing and communication manager at the Dutch Cycling Embassy in Delft, South Holland. And Melissa is an urban planning digital media specialist with Mobicon, also in the Netherlands. Like I said earlier, together as partners, they've created quite a social media following around the Dutch cycling lifestyle. And you should definitely follow them on Twitter and Instagram, which I'll also link to in the show notes. So before we get started, let me just tell you a little bit about what you can expect in this conversation. So we'll talk about things like creating more enjoyable and calm cities, particularly at the street level, uh, coming of age without needing a car and how that affects children quite a bit, the concept of aging in place, the importance of having our chance encounters in public, making eye contact in public and why that's a thing, and then the concept of moving away from shaming people in order to advocate for more livable cities. The alternative is to attract people with better options and to tell a story, which Chris and Melissa will definitely tell you a good story. One thing to note before we dive into the conversation, if you've got questions or you want to see me interview a particular person on the subject of Liberal City connected to the work that they're doing, please let me know. I would love to interview them or I would love to answer your question on an upcoming episode. So reach out to me via thelivablecity at gmail.com. Now, without further ado, let's dive into the conversation. Chris and Melissa, welcome to Livable City. You are so generous for joining me today. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having us. Yeah, this is the first time I've had two guests on together, which I'm very excited about. So yeah, thank you again. <laughs> um, <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourselves and your work in advocating for more livable places. Ah, where to begin? Yeah, that's always <laughs> an interesting story. Um, and Melissa and I, I think, come at the urbanism world from a very different angle. Neither of us uh, studied urban planning or transportation or, or any of these fields. Uh, we, we came into the world of, of urbanism and advocacy as users, uh, as, as cyclists in the city of Vancouver, using a bicycle and public transport um, to get around every day with, with two small children. And um, we saw the, the challenges and the uh, the um, benefits of doing so, and, and started to share share them on social media and uh, and writing articles and, and blog posts, and uh, things just kind of snowballed to the, from there to the point where we're now working in transportation for organizations that are exporting uh, the Netherlands' expertise and knowledge around the world, and having written a book about um, the stories that uh, that Dutch cities can offer other other cities and. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, an unlikely story, I guess, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, one that we're uh, uh, proud to be a, a part of this uh, global movement to make cities more livable and more uh, more human. Absolutely, that's well said. So, yeah, as you said, you're originally from Vancouver, Canada. So, why the move to the Netherlands, and and what was it like deciding to make that move, really, to a new country thousands of miles from home? Yeah, I think it's I, well. To backtrack a little bit, we 
first visited the Netherlands in 2016 with our kids, but the time were uh, nine and 11. And, you know, the idea was to come here to learn what it was that made these, like made the Netherlands stand out as this cycling nation, um, having read so much about it beforehand. And like most people, we got here, spent five weeks cycling around in five different cities and really fell in love with the livability of the cities here, no matter the size or the scale, it always seemed like uh, everything was at reach and everything was very comfortable. And then at the same time, we watched our children really enjoy this newfound freedom that we felt much more comfortable giving them because the cities were much calmer and quieter. And so we, you know, returned back to Vancouver, still happy to live there, but knowing that there was perhaps a better option for what we wanted for our kids. And so that's sort of what spurred it. You know, we were writing the book and making connections with various organizations over here and uh, always said that if the right opportunity came along, although we knew it would be very difficult, we would take the leap and as luck would have it, or as hard work would have it, uh, Chris and I both made connections with um, him with the Dutch Cycling Embassy and myself with Mobicon to find work over here to be able to do what we were doing in Vancouver around promoting livable cities and um, really trying to educate people on what is possible, but being able to do that for organizations that are transferring that Dutch knowledge and at the same time being able to provide that freedom that we wanted for the kids in in a new place. So now we live in a small town where, I mean, right now they're out walking and cycling with friends uh, we're not concerned where they are. We're not concerned about their safety when it comes to traffic. Um, and everyone just lives a lot more calmly and uh, much more enjoyably, I think, um, because of this move. So I think that's sort of sort of the trajectory that got us here. Um, and a lot of people think that it's all about the bikes. And yes, that's part of it. But a lot of it was really about what we could offer our kids for, you know, for their teen years to really enjoy some independence and freedom probably sooner than they would have if we had stayed in Vancouver. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's fantastic. Um, so you touched on the freedom aspect for your kids. What is it about the Netherlands or a place that's uh, laid out, designed like it, um, really to prioritize cycling that that is so freedom giving to kids? You know, because like we in in North America like to think, get your driver's license. You know, whenever whenever it is, typically sixteen in the U.S. Um, and kids see that as freedom. You know, tell a little bit about the freedom that you're talking about? Yeah, it's, um, as Melissa said, I think a lot of people assume that um, we moved to the Netherlands because of the cycling, but it's really um, the built environments that they've shaped that are really uh, low car is the expression that we use, um, that there are cars here, but um, driving is quite circuitous in that you can't really drive directly from A to B. It's a roundabout way. Um, the, the, a lot of the cars are slowed down. Um, and as a result of the, the walking and cycling and public transport networks, uh, there's far fewer cars on the road. And so we find ourselves now, you know, going for long walks. Um, our children now can wander the city pretty comfortably um, in this environment where um, there's far fewer, not just danger from cars, but discomfort uh, in terms of it limiting our mobility, in terms of it limiting um, our uh, safety, our, our uh, joy and pleasure and, and experience of the city uh, with the noise and the, the exhaust and all these externalities that the cars that bring into your, your city. Um, 
they're they are still present here, but at, at a much lower scale, at a much uh, lower level. So um, there aren't many places in the world that we've actually been to that that have this kind of low car environment. And uh, and part of the next book that we want to write is uh, really talking about uh, uh, why why these kinds of environments are important, um, how people can thrive uh, in them in, in terms of their health, their happiness, um, and, and how these cities give uh, more opportunity, equal access to opportunity for people from all kinds of economic, uh, ethnic backgrounds, uh, physical abilities, people without a driver's license. Um, every resident of our city uh, here in Delft has access to the same opportunities because the way of, the way that the streets are designed. And uh, so, cycling is a kind of a byproduct of all of that, but it's not uh, the the uh, the reason that uh, we moved here, the reason that we continue to to enjoy living here. It's more just the living in this environment where where cars don't dominate everything as as they did, sadly, in Vancouver and, and uh, virtually everywhere else we've lived up to this point. And I think when it comes to the when it comes to children as well, and I think it's often something we don't focus on enough in North America in terms of the conversation. Is you know you pointed out. Even and Chris and I had the exact same experience. You turn sixteen, you get your driver's license, and you have this freedom. But what do you do until then? And so, I think you know part of the, the way the built environment is here, it creates these safer environments. So people recognize. Listen, I don't want to cart my kid to and from all these different things. So once they're old enough, confident enough, usually around eight or nine, they start letting them do a lot of those things independently because families, parents feel much more comfortable because that built environment has reduced the number of cars they have to interact with. There's a lot more safe infrastructure where there is a higher level of traffic. And I think that just, you know, it's, I think it's often taken for granted for most families that we tend to talk to here, but it is part of that is, you know, because they're more comfortable, kids are getting out and they're getting themselves to soccer practice or to, guitar lessons or any other number of things independently and that just helps them feel much more confident and because cities are more low car uh it just enables that from a much earlier age absolutely yeah um also at the the tail end of your life too when you're no longer able to drive uh because you're you know i don't know you can't see as well or you can't react as well can't drive anymore so how do you get around yeah and and that's another topic we really want to get into with this book is is uh that we're about to write is uh the topic of aging in place which is is going to become a, a major topic with the baby boom generation reaching um their retirement years and, and not being able to drive forever uh we're almost trapping them in the neighborhoods that they've uh, built because they're utterly car dependent and so they're either going to be reliant on other people to get from a to b or, or a bus that comes every 45 minutes, or they're going to be trapped and lonely in their house, um, which is not a, a quality of life that we want, would wish upon our parents. And so one of the uh, other remarkable things here we've seen is the number of elderly people that are way past the point of being able to operate an automobile, uh, but they comfortably navigate an e-bike or a tricycle. Um, my, when my parents visited, we got them a quadricycle uh um, and uh, it offers that 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 autonomy that uh, that uh, you know we we are losing when when we cannot drive in a in a in a car dominated environment. And so um, we've uh, met a number of our neighbors on our street that are able to comfortably age in place, and they're able to interact with their neighbors and get out of the house. And 
um, you know, that, that becomes another really uh, imperative, uh, important reason that we should be uh, no longer designing our, our cities around the automobile. Yes, I totally agree. It's so counterintuitive coming from uh, a North American, you know, place because we, we like to think, you know, if, if somebody can't get around by a car, how are they going to get around, young or old or in between, you know, and, and we say, like, if we start laying out our cities for bicycles and for walking and whatever, well, that's that's not fair, right? Who, who wants to do that? Uh, who can get around on a bike if you're 85, you know? And <laughs> you're, you're saying it's quite the opposite, right? It's more humane. Absolutely, yeah. I, and it, the thing is, like, when we talk about getting around here, it really is. It's not just the cycling. It's the way that the low low car environment enables more walking, and then it enables access to public transportation. If you know, say we happen to move further away from the city center when we're older and we're in our retirement years, there's still access to some form of transportation that isn't a car to get us to the center, and we can do so comfortably on foot or you know bike as as it comes. And you know, it's interesting because I think. There's a slow, maybe slow realization in North America, but we've even seen it with our parents, mine in particular, that realize, you know, we like we talk to them about how they have a cottage quite far away from where they live, and they recognize we're not going to be able to drive there forever. It's not, we won't be able to, but they see how having bikes now and riding around a bit more like we used to when we were much younger, they can get to the shops nearby, they can enjoy the neighborhood, and they don't have to get in a car. And I think there might be this, it's, Unfortunately, not fast enough, I think, to cater to the baby boomers. But I think there is that slow realization, even on that generation now, that the car, while it once represented this like tool of immense freedom, also comes with some baggage as you get older. So it'll be interesting to see how cities everywhere really adapt to that um, in the coming years. Yeah, and I see a lot of um, elderly retirement places being built on the edges of cities here in the U.S. and I scratch my head because I'm like, how are they going to get anywhere? It's like we're putting them in fortresses on the edge of the cities. Yeah. And it really, I think that's one of the things, and Chris mentioned our neighbors that we see on the street. And I, for various reasons, we've bumped into them and, and said hello and got to know them a little bit. But we have this sort of now intergenerational connection that when you're moving people into these retirement communities that we think are providing them with everything they need is actually separating them from the rest of society which isn't good for their mental health. Which, I mean, people have been talking about that for years, this idea that you know, people in retirement facilities interacting with people from daycares has actually proven to be really good for people that you know, are on their own, their partners may have passed away, or for various reasons they don't see their family enough. It's, that it's so important for their good mental health well into old age. So when we're separating like that, it's, it's not really facilitating this like, vibrant sort of community that I think we're all striving for. Yes, I agree. You know, I live um, kind of downtown in Chicago, and I love when I bump into somebody who is clearly, you know, um, in later ages of their life. And I see an old lady like walking down the street. She's not going very quickly, but clearly she lives around here and she's staying, but she's able to get places because she's walking. Yeah. Um, and I think the bicycle can play a role in that. And, and unfortunately, the way we've designed our streets is such that we now only envisage cycling as something that able-bodied uh, athletes and, and, and the fit and brave do. And um, one of the really uh, amazing things here is virtually everybody cycles, regardless of their physical ability. Uh, and, and so you see this range of 
uh, ages and abilities and, and types of bicycles that people use. And as long as it, it kind of proves to us that as long as the space is there and the conditions are made comfortable, then people will cycle for as long as their body will let them. And in a lot of ways, uh, for a lot of people, it's actually easier than walking and it becomes this uh, rolling walking stick as we've, uh, we've heard it described. Yes, agreed. Yeah. So you touched a little bit on it, but maybe you can talk a little bit more about how you, you know, got particularly focused on cycling. Why cycling? And before I give it, hand it over to you, I'm just going to say a quick aside for our regular listeners. Promise this podcast isn't becoming just one about bicycles. They just happen to be an important piece of livable places that are that many are passionate about. Yeah, I think our story around cycling. Um, I mean, while Chris and I have both been cycling since we were very very young. Um, I think the real journey into where we are now started uh, in 2010. We were both working in within, you know, 30 minute bike ride at most from our home in Vancouver and decided after our car was sitting collecting dust for several months to to sell it, to relieve ourselves of that financial burden and, and see how things go. Uh, Vancouver was very fortunate to have a number of car share organizations set up in the city and we were living right by public transportation in a very walkable, one of the highest walkable communities in the city. And so cycling just became a natural extension of that. And I think through that lived experience of us traveling to work by bike, but also getting around the city with our kids who at the time were one and three, we began to have a greater appreciation for definitely the benefits that cycling around brings like cycling around town can bring but also the challenges that we were facing because the built environment wasn't making it safe enough and i think just inherently being a passionate somewhat rebel rebellious people we we figured we would fight the system <laughs> and, <laughs> and try to make vancouver Good for better you. <laughs> yeah <laughs> try to encourage vancouver to be a better place and and then hopefully help other cities I'm sure Chris has lots to add to that. <laughs> no, I, I mean, that's, I think, um, and it, it just ha- also happened to coincide with this um, citywide debate that was taking place. We just elected a, a bike-friendly mayor who was implementing uh, a plan to reallocate a number of uh, lanes of parking and traffic into protected bike lanes, and the uh, the inevitable outrage ensued. And so uh, we felt compelled to kind of interject our our experience and our perspective into those debates and discussions that were taking place through the the articles that we were writing and uh, because it was all about well we're inconveniencing cars and nobody uses the bike lanes and the businesses are going to suffer and uh, blah 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 and and and, uh, none of those things obviously (laughs) happened Uh, and uh, we ended up you know providing uh, our story and then the stories of friends and, and people around us that that benefited from that kind of political bravery that that uh, that the mayor undertook because he very easily could have backed down and, and walked away when the, the the controversy erupted and so um, yeah we spent you know the better part of, of ten years involved in that conversation and trying to make help Vancouver become more bike friendly it came a long way in that period of time and uh, but it still definitely has a long way to go before it's anywhere near uh, Dutch levels of of, uh, of safety, of participation, and of, uh, of comfort and convenience. And so it's one of the reasons why we, we didn't hesitate when we had the opportunity to come here, um, because we can now cycle around without having to check, plan our route, check a map, uh, worry about whether we're going to be interacting with uh, dangerous intersections or trouble spots. And 
Um, and we have the added bonus of, like Melissa said, working for organizations that are helping cities around the world to uh, quote unquote go Dutch, if you will. <laughs> yeah, that's super exciting. Uh, I want to ask more about that, but uh, I want to touch on something first before we get there in, in greater detail. So I like to ask a broad question to everybody that I interview. So what do you think are the most important qualities of a place that make it very livable to you? It's a great question. Uh, I think for me at least, there's got to be those opportunities for interaction with the people around us. Um, one of the things I think we really loved about Vancouver and we really love about Delft is when we would go out on foot or on bike, you could always bump into people that you knew and you had the space um, for the most part to be able to have you know a stop and chat as we would call them or have these moments of accidental connection with people. And I think a city that you know is really livable and really vibrant has opportunities for all of those accidental meetups because it really builds that not, not just a connection with the people that you know but also connection with people that you don't know um and so when you know when the cities really facilitate that you really feel like you're a community member and you're you feel more connected to the environment around you yeah i love that um tell me a little bit more about that because i think some people might say that's maybe a bug instead of a feature um that they want uh, anonymity and just go about their daily lives. So why is it important to be, you know, have those chance encounters with people that either you know or you don't know yet, but they'd like to get to know you? Uh, why, why is that important? Well, I would, one of the points I, I would make is that um, we live in cities for a reason, and that's, you know, for uh, cooperation, for, uh, you know, uh, interaction, for opportunities to uh when we need support and help uh, uh, to get from the people that we live around uh, and to provide that support and help to the people that live around us and um i think one of the unfortunate side effects of, of spending our days uh in bubbles whether it's an automobile or an office or our uh, own private homes is that we don't have those opportunities to interact with people um, to learn the qualities of trust and empathy that um, seem missing, especially in our uh, politics these days, um, that we're becoming a very uh, distrustful uh, race of people, um, and uh, and really not, uh, we're kind of shutting off and not learning to cooperate with one another. Uh, we're talking to you on Brexit Day, for example, where oh, yeah. uh, you know, the United Kingdom may be emblematic of that, is that they've decided they will go it alone. Uh, and and I can't help but think, is it a product of them, their communities have stopped cooperating with each other, trusting each other. Um, they're not interacting with each other. They're not making eye contact with each other. They're not talking to the proverbial other. Um, and, and as a result, they're becoming quite xenophobic and, and shut off and uh, distrustful of the world around them. And uh, unfortunately, that seems to be a trend, uh, not just in the UK, but uh, in America and, and other countries. And uh, we're really fascinated with how the car might play a role in, in, in that trend, I think. Yeah, I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think anyone purposely goes out to be insular and isolate themselves. I, sh I shouldn't say anybody, but I think inherently we're, well, we all know inherently we're social creatures. We need to have that human interaction in order to find happiness. And so when we start taking that out, whether that's through the places where we live, through you know more and more exurbs and suburban neighborhoods, or the way we move around in private automobiles, you know we start to really shut ourselves off. And I think 
you know, we're now seeing some of those repercussions. And I think those of us that are working to try to return back to this idea of a socially connected city are, are trying to buck that a little bit and trying to reverse a little bit of the trends if we can, at least, if not for us, for our kids and the generations to come. I think you're hitting on a, a really deep theme and one that I really think is important um, that I like to try and tease out on Liberal City is the importance of that connection to each other um, and why it actually is a universal thing that we all need. As you said, we're social creatures, right? So um, I think some people would think that they like anonymity and going about their day and you just, you know, get out of my way. I'm I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to come home and do my thing. I don't need you, but I think they're deluding themselves a little bit, right? Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's a place and a time to want to be on our own. You know, everyone wants that little bit of like me time. Um, but yeah, no one really is truly happy if they don't even have interaction with like friends and family, right? So when we're completely shutting ourselves off, it's, it's just not healthy <laughs> um, mentally, physically, um, but and also for, for our cities when we're all shutting ourselves away. Well, we're also living in an age of uh, uh, where we basically don't need to leave the house anymore, right? We've got Netflix in the place of the communal uh, movie-going experience. We've got uh, home delivery for all of our shopping needs, even the groceries now. So people can stay home and never leave the house. And so I think cities are are competing with that convenience and as a result they need to make themselves more vibrant more attractive um it's not enough to just make your city center easy to drive drive to anymore uh and one of the really great things about delft city center is it's almost entirely car free and and so it attracts people activity um commerce uh especially when the markets are happening on, on the two mornings of the week that the markets happen and people make a point of coming to the city center um to get that kind of uh, the antidote to 21st century loneliness, which is um, browsing the market stalls, uh, you know, getting a, a, a coffee on one of the terraces. And it's not because the Elf City Center is easy to drive to. It's, it's because the absence of cars that, that makes it at such a pleasant place. And I think there's lessons for uh, cities around the world that, that want to uh, keep their city centers vibrant and, and, and accessible and, and attractive. And, um, yeah. I think well, I think we're seeing examples of that now with a few cities in the UK and and Ghent in Belgium and um, various other cities making these commitments to become low car and you know we're working with various municipalities where when we are talking to them they recognize the importance of revitalizing that city core um, and a lot of times that is talking about making it low car and making it more of a place for community and gathering. So I think there there's been this realization now that we need that space even if we're walking through it. Um, without having those direct conversations with people, you're at least around other people. I think people are really, at least, I shouldn't say every city, but a lot of cities are starting to recognize the, the real value in that. Yes, agreed. This conversation on Livable City will be right back. bit more about what you felt when you moved from 
Vancouver to um, the Netherlands. So what was that feeling like on the on the street as you were cycling, as you were walking in the Netherlands versus Vancouver? Yeah, I think there's a, a serenity uh, that's really hard to communicate unless you're here and experience it firsthand. Um, we try to to uh, describe it in, in our tweets and our posts and, and share photographs and videos, but unless you're here and experience it firsthand, again, in this low-car environment where you can suddenly walk from A to B without having to constantly be vigilantly looking for speeding automobiles, uh, you can actually hear the things that are happening around you, children playing, the church bells ringing, the birds chirping. You can you can smell, your senses are, are engaged. Um, whether you're, you're walking or on a bicycle, um, there's an overwhelming sense of, of, of calm that um, I think is really difficult to get in a, in a modern city because everything is so fast-paced and noisy and, and dangerous, to be frank, as a, as a result of the, uh, all the cars that are going through it. So yeah, uh, one thing that we've started to perhaps take for granted here now, almost being uh, living in Delft for a year, is, is how serene uh, and cozy the streets feel and, and how much time we want to spend outside. We'll just go for long walks. Uh, because we can here, whereas we wouldn't really do that in Vancouver because it was so unnerving and, and stressful and, and discomforting. And, and so we've, we've really, uh, I think, adjusted quite well. But we do get to, through work, take occasional trips to other cities. Uh, I was in Los Angeles before Christmas, and uh, it was a bit of a wake-up call walking around there to remind us what we, we now take for granted here in Delft. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it speaks to something about, I mean, I think we knew what we wanted in Vancouver in terms of those serene moments. We would walk along some neighbors, neighborhood streets or bike along, but it was never, walking was probably a bit of a calmer experience, but when you're cycling, there is always that, you know, inherent, I'm coming up to the spot where I know I've had issues before and I'm going to have an issue again. Is this going to be another one of those times? You're always on alert. And so it speaks to the fact that we always, our favorite spot to cycle in Vancouver was along the seawall where you're just around people that are walking and enjoying life. And it was much more of a recreational pursuit, but I find we were always happiest on those rides. So I, I think there's, you know, it's probably something we realize even more now that we're here, that we get those experiences, even when we're in the city center or riding around in our neighborhood, we don't have to go to a destination in order to achieve that. We can get that just by walking outside our front door and, and seeing where it takes us. Yeah. Oh man. I feel the same way. The, my favorite place to bike in Chicago is the the Lakefront Trail, which again you don't come across any cars, except I mean you do occasionally parallel Lakeshore Drive, which is turned into a major highway. But um, for the most part, there's no intersections where you in where you encounter cars. So same experience that you just said with Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love what you said, Chris, before about um, you know the concept of cozy streets. Why do we who live in cities that don't have cozy streets. Why do we accept that? Why do you think we just <laughs> accept that as the way they are? That's a city. Oh man, that's an absolutely brilliant question, and I don't. I just don't have an answer for it. <laughs> I know it's like um, a million dollar question. Yeah, I mean, one thing I think we're really coming to terms with here, the more time we spend in the Netherlands, is the Dutch are not an enlightened people. Like they're not. They don't care about the environment more than other. Uh, people around the world they don't particularly love cycling or 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 uh, urbanism you know uh, 
these are just um, the cities that were handed down to them by by the the planners and the uh, the policymakers and the politicians that that had a vision for what a city should be. And so the people living here uh, that we interact with on a day to day basis have no clue that this place is uh, any different or any you know more special than anywhere else. They completely take it for granted. They are, as we describe, you know, fish, goldfish in the goldfish bowl. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, inversely, I think people who live uh, in more car-dominated cities uh, just accept what what their world is and, and don't question it. And uh, uh, yeah, I have to drive from A to B because that's the way the world is without thinking that maybe there's an alternative um, to to the way they're living, the way their streets are designed, the way their buildings are designed, the way their their whole lives are, are done from the the daily or weekly grocery shop to uh, you know the, uh, the, uh, the the way they get to those grocery um, yeah. stores. And so um, yeah, it, it's it's just I think human nature to take the world around us for granted and. Um, and it just ha- so happens that people living here in the Netherlands have an environment that keeps them very healthy and very happy and very social and uh, all these great benefits that, that come with it. But they're completely unaware that it's uh, that it is happening and that it, it's uh, it's that much different anywhere else unless they do extensive traveling. That's fascinating. Do you think um, you said they, they take it for granted, but are they aware that um, they need to maintain that momentum? I think there are well, there are some some people working in the field that know that they have to keep moving forward. Uh, there are some cities that are looking ahead, but I think the general public probably don't well, likely don't know. So there are certainly organizations that recognize that the Dutch cities, um, as great as they are, still need still need to continually adapt. So I know these are ideas that seem so far ahead for a lot of North American cities, but you know, take Amsterdam for example. Most people that visit now um, from other cities recognize how there's just so many bikes there and they can't manage it anymore. The city recognizes that as well. And so now they're thinking, what do we do to accommodate future bike use? What do we do to keep our city moving forward? And so there are people that are working for organizations like when I work for Mobicon or like the Urban Cycling Institute or various others, uh, urban planning firms that are starting to bring that work forward. But yeah, as I said, the average person likely has no idea. I mean, the number of people that we've told that we're here working to promote cycling, Dutch cycling ideas outside of the Netherlands, they don't even understand what, what it is that we're doing. They don't understand why that's even a thing. So yeah, I think, you know, as in most cities, there's always somebody thinking further ahead, but for the most part, most people just live in blissful ignorance, which is nice to a point. I think sometimes we wish that we hadn't drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <cool>. <laughs> is there, is there anybody that's pushing to uh, turn the Dutch cities into North American looking cities? <laughs> no, I mean, you could not get elected uh, in, in 2020 in uh, uh, a city in the Netherlands by uh, arguing that it needs to be more accessible by car or easier to drive. Uh, I <laughs> that think just sounds funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, um, well, and, and we're seeing now with all the examples that Melissa ma- mentioned of the traffic circulation plans and the, uh, the cities that decide to head this direction um, and make their city centers more, more pedestrianized and more human, 
Um, nobody ever wants to go back once they experience it. They, the controversy, the, the debate happens um, in regards to a, a plan before it's implemented. And then once it's implemented, uh, the world continues to turn. People use the city center and they realize how amazing it is. Um, and and uh, Groningen was the example that we, the story we told in the book that uh, basically made its city center impenetrable by car in 1977. And uh, no one now, 40 years later, would even dream of reversing that that trend because it's it's made their city uh, just so amazing to to live and work and, and, and shop in. So um, I think we're seeing a, a rising tide of cities that are trying to implement similar changes. It's just whether they can push through the controversy, get those plans built, and then allow people to experience them because they know there's really no turning back after that point. That's fantastic. I, I could talk to you for hours about this, this subject specifically because I think there's, a, there's so much to learn here particularly what you said that none of these cities, once they make the change to orienting themselves towards being on foot or on bike, wants to go back, right? Nobody really is like, oh, it was better five years ago when cars could come through here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I really liked being stuck in traffic. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's nothing like a fresh smell of exhaust in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> and our, our, our first book, um, we specifically mention or look at 10 – case studies of 10 American or Canadian cities that implement uh, ideas and plans that were inspired by Dutch uh, cities. And in every single case, you know, as we joke, everything turned out fine. Not only did everything turn out fine, things were better than everybody imagined. And, and no one can even conceive of, of going back to the way it was before. And so, uh, but it's only if they have politicians that are brave enough and and advocates that really push and challenge the status quo. That you actually see those changes through and, and, uh, and then start reaping the rewards. Yes, absolutely. That's a perfect segue to uh, my next topic question for you. So a major theme that I like to focus on in this podcast is this concept of leading change. And you both are clearly change leaders um, you know, through your books and, and your, um, what you post on social media is fantastic. I'm sure in your local conversations when you're in Vancouver too. Talk a little bit about how you see yourselves leading this change around cycling in particular. That's a, (laughs) it's funny because I think Chris would agree with me in saying that we kind of accidentally ended up here. I don't think we ever intended to be these, like these change makers um, when it comes to cycling. But I think what we really pride um, ourselves on in terms of our messaging and what a lot of people say they really relate to is the fact that we're, we're not coming at people with, and we do come with stats every once in a while and figures, but what we really try to communicate at least from the start and, and have continued to now that we're here is show what it has meant for our lives and our family. So in a way that people can relate to, because we know that we're never going to convince anybody to decide to go car light or even car free by shaming them. But if we show them there's another option, if we show them that through various actions that um, advocates have pushed for, I mean, in Vancouver, there was advocates pushing for a lot of the changes we enjoyed decades before we enjoyed it. And the politicians that helped that come about, you know, because of that, we were able to experience life differently and, our mission was to show people that it was actually possible and a lot easier than they might think and maybe just encourage them because we really, yeah, I think, as I said, 
you're not going to shame anyone onto a bicycle, but you might convince them that it, it looks fun if you make it look easy and comfortable and convenient. Yeah, there's a there's a deep uh, concept there that you just touched on um, that I want to dive into a little bit. I think a lot of advocates, particularly in North America, again, since you know we're we're desperate for better infrastructure around this stuff, uh, at least those of us who care about it, and you know, we get frustrated and we do get stuck in these shaming cycles, but why do you think that isn't effective? Well, no, nobody's ever changed their behavior by being guilt-tripped, uh, I don't think. And um, yeah, I mean, we could point to the, the modern-day uh, environmentalist movement as, as being uh, quite ineffective in terms of changing people's behavior. Um, and so we tackle it from um, a different perspective. We're trying to show people what's possible uh, in terms of uh, what they can get out of better health, happiness, uh, using emotion and, and sensory experiences, uh, the joys and the pleasures of living in these types of cities, of riding a bicycle, being um, living their lives differently. Um, well, it comes down to that idea of like people believe what they feel to be true. And if you show them a feeling that they can connect to, they're more likely to think that what you're doing makes sense than, yeah, if you just make them feel dumb about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So for us, it's always been about you know normalizing um, what is uh, quite foreign behavior. The idea of you know rolling around on an upright bicycle with no helmet on uh, to the grocery store to get a couple bags of groceries is is something that they do in foreign countries and and not you know in in America or Canada. But uh, when that became part of our reality in Vancouver because of the infrastructure that was being built. You know, we, we, we tried to show people what, what was possible and, and, and what can be normal uh, when, when you advocate for, for change in your city. And, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about uh, just the idea of normalizing activities that we, we would otherwise think is just something those weirdo, weirdo Europeans do. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> uh, Seth Godin, who I, I love, um, I, I follow him a lot. He's a fantastic marketer. He talks about kind of what you just said, and he says it another way. People like us do things like fill in the blank, right? And he's talking about normalcy and mm-hmm. and how you um, how people uh, basically like represent what is normal and how how they feel about what is normal. So you're talking about changing that, yeah. yeah. And people go on holidays to these places. I mean, that's <laughs> the the really yeah uh, fascinating thing. They go to Paris and they go to Amsterdam and they go to Copenhagen and then they come back and it does not even occur to them that their city could be maybe not like those cities, but a better version of itself if they if they simply um, you know made some adjustments to their streets and public spaces. And uh, there's a I think a bit of a disconnect there between where we holiday and where we vacation uh, and then where we come back to and, and we just, again, accept the world around us as it is and assume it cannot change. Uh, and that's unfortunate, but uh, I guess it's just the reality. Of, and maybe social media and, and, and other forms of communication are, are helping people to understand and um, realize that uh, the status quo is not, not good enough. And, and uh, hopefully we can play a role in that with our social media accounts. Well, and even pointing out, too, that, you know, a lot of these places that they visit that they absolutely love all went through similar growing pains, Um, you know, as the car became more dominant in the 50s, 60s and 70s. It's just some of them decided to go a different way for various reasons. You know, here in the Netherlands, it was because of people advocating for differences. 
you know, Paris holds on to its roots and it is changing again, um, you know, to become more car friendly. You know, there was announcements earlier. Car friendly, bike friendly. Bike friendly. I apologize. Become more bike friendly <laughs> environments. Um, <laughs> and the announcements earlier this week about, you know, them wanting, and Hidalgo wanting to create these 15 minute cities um, or neighborhoods, you know, this idea that they can't change and we get so stuck in like, this is what it, this is just what it is, is not true because we're constantly changing. And so I think we just need to be reminded of that. And I think social media is definitely playing a big role in helping people to see the difference that is possible. Yeah. Agreed. A big concept on this podcast, um, that I'd like to talk about and encourage people to do is, is to get involved and how to get involved, uh, making change, um, so if they go on that vacation to the Netherlands or you know to, to Copenhagen or whatever, and they're really inspired by it, come home with that energy and you know what can you do with it? How can you get involved? How can you lead change and and more effective change than like you talked about like the environmental movement? We need to get beyond just shaming each other into what we shouldn't be doing. And I think like like you two represent brilliantly. Painting a picture, painting a picture of how you feel um, in a place that is different. So it's like you're, it's like you're capturing a little bit of that feeling from, from vacation. And here you go, you know, <laughs> this you can have it too where you live. Yeah. Um, well, and I think you talk if you talk to most advocates, they'll probably say the same thing that oftentimes it's not about going out and being. You know, let's, let's take the environmental movement, for example. Let's say you want to change the way things are done. You're not going to go out and join Greenpeace right away, but you might be able to start making small changes in your own community that can become bigger. And we've seen that with, like, tactical urbanism throughout the U.S. We've seen that with, you know, small groups of people creating just social rides, people to experience the city differently that lead into bigger things that become things like the Sokovia or car free days, you know, everything started out small. And I think if we look at things in a, in our own community and what can we do, they can become bigger. And I, I mean, that's how Chris and I started. It was me sharing my experiences with my community of uh, fellow parents that were getting around car free. It was Chris sharing a similar experience through smaller magazines that he wanted that we were starting to write for you know it all started small and became bigger and so we don't have to tackle the problem at its head we just need to start with something small that works for us and then it will hopefully grow and build from that as you inspire other people yep i think that's a great uh, little bit of uh, wisdom there it's really hard to you know not grow impatient um especially as you see you know some again north american cities that experiment with some of this and you know, sometimes stuff gets ripped out. You make progress and it gets ripped out and reverted back to, you know, being like a, a wide street, being a car sewer again, for example. Yeah, um, the pace of change is never fast enough as we found in Vancouver, even when it was quite fast. Uh, the <laughs> idea of, of, yeah, actually reversing it, it can be quite discouraging and uh, make you want to pack up and, and move to the Netherlands as we... That's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But that's not, that's obviously not the solution. I mean, not everyone, not everyone is as privileged or, or should uh, have to move halfway around the world to experience a city that caters to their needs. Everybody should have a city that supports them and, and uh, treats them the way that we feel like we're treated in Delft as royalty when we're walking or cycling. And um, that's the really unfortunate thing is uh, they've really got to fight tooth and nail um, to make changes that are going to benefit everybody, um, 
to make their city ultimately a, a better place. Yeah, and I think we both, um, in our move here, we both recognize the place of privilege we come in order to be able to do this move. But I think that's why we keep communicating these possibilities in a way that it's not, oh, look how wonderful it is here, but look how it can be. And this is maybe this is how we got here. And maybe this is something you can try in your city because, you know, we don't, we don't want to say like, oh, now we have this great experience and we'll hold it, keep, keep it a secret to ourselves. We really want for the places where we grew up and for Vancouver and for the places that we visit to be able to one day be like this as well. And um, yeah, so that's why we don't stop what we're doing, even though we're quite comfortable now. Well, and <laughs> there's a great example of that and, and one that we come back to again and again, if we're hosting people uh, in Delft is we'll take them into the main market square in the center of Delft, with the, which is this beautiful um, terrace-lined public square uh, with the uh, 600-year-old church on one side and, and the old city hall on the other side. And as recently as 2003, that was a surface parking lot that was filled with cars. Um, oh, wow. And it was only uh, 17 years ago that the city council, uh, under the vehement protest of all the restaurants that lined that square, uh, started taking the parking out piece by piece and uh, it was only they had to make a compromise to give the restaurants uh, a share of that space for additional tables and terraces um, that they were able to take all those cars out there and, and you stand there now in 2020 and you can't envision that but there's uh, amazing photographs and stories uh, that we try to share with in, uh, incoming delegations and people that we host here in Delft is proof that even here in the Netherlands, the work is uh, ongoing and, and the changes, a lot of the changes that feel like they were made a lifetime ago were only uh, 15 or 20 years ago. And uh, there's no reason why you can't make that uh, change in your city if you just apply the, the similar vision and, and the similar uh, strategy, because there's always has to be a, a strategy and a, uh, a larger vision behind what you're doing. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Even there. Yeah. Um, Similar struggles to what we have here in the U.S. And, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point, and that's one that we try to communicate: is that a lot of a lot of the arguments, uh, a lot of the fights that are happening in North America around this change, you know, the fight over parking or the fight over space on the road, or the sh shop owners worried about their bottom line if you take away those two parking spaces in front of their business. These are not arguments that are only happening in North America. They happened here and in some places do continue to happen. It's just that there is this understanding now that if we can get past this, we know it'll get better. Um, and so we often say that a lot of these lessons that we present in the book or that we present on social media are presented because we think that now the Netherlands has made so many of the mistakes for most people that we can just learn from them and move faster and and progress, progress quicker. And, you know, that's our hope anyway, <laughs> um, is that, you know, we can come and visit Chicago in 10 years and it'll look completely different from when we were there in 2007. Um, and be much more we're working on it. <laughs> yeah. Be much more people friendly and, you know, much more livable. So, you know, we, we think we like to be optimistic and think that there is hope for everybody. <laughs> yeah. What would you tell that person that wants to get going, wants to get started advocating for something they have in their mind, right? Be it more cycling friendly, more walking friendly, those cozy streets that you talk about. What, what would you say to them? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we get asked this all the time and, and, you know, it's, it's, I think just a matter of finding 
uh, an outlet, finding an organization, finding uh, an avenue to apply your your passion and your energy and your enthusiasm. And it doesn't really matter if you've only got a little bit of free time or you've got a lot of free time, but if you can um, join an existing organization that's advocating for more livable streets, if you can uh, do a pop-up uh, parklet uh, outside your front door, a, a car-free street event, if you can, um, any number of these things that, that Melissa mentioned earlier are all small uh, things that could snowball into something bigger and better. So uh, take the time you have and, and, and apply it where your passion is. And um, I think find like-minded people in your neighborhood, in your community, in your city, um, and, uh, and hopefully you can echo uh, their voices and, and become heard uh, in the, in the decision-making corridors in your city. Social media is a very powerful tool and, and one that we've seen People get organized, uh, connect with like-minded people, uh, and show their uh, politicians and, uh, and uh, decision makers in their city what's possible. And if you want to bring them to the Netherlands, uh, uh, you know, as, as we were saying, uh, there's nothing beats an experience of coming to a city like Delft or, or Utrecht or, or uh, Venezuela or Amsterdam um, and, and just seeing what's possible. Uh, we... Uh, Professionally now, you know, we're hosting people from around the world to to these cities to to uh, hopefully influence them and, and and show them what what could be if uh, if they just get through those growing pains. And I think the that's other, fantastic. The only other thing I would say, and I mean, it's something that we've seen at least with a lot of political action in the U.S. is get kids involved because they've got a lot of passion. And I think you know, this is we're we're doing all of this for. I would like to think we're doing all of this for them. Because, you know, we're, we're enjoying the work to get it done. They will enjoy the results. And so if you get them involved in the process, um, I, I remember uh, photos of a, a group I know in Winnipeg that got a bunch of school kids involved with painting the front of the street. And the pictures of them, you know, just helping to create artwork on the street and then enjoying it on bike later, they just want to feel involved. And so if you can get, like, kids out there, not only does that make a great photo opportunity, but also, you know, yeah. they also have now this investment in their community that will keep inspiring them as well. So I'm a big advocate for getting kids involved. Yeah, I mean, what if we can get them basically dreaming about an amazing bike or an amazing park or something like that where they live instead of, you know, uh, a sports car. Mm-hmm. That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> this is fantastic. So um, as we come to a close on our conversation, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to leave with our listeners? Hmm. Do you have anything you want to say? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, the biggest thing that I think we felt when we were still living in North America and, and still think to this day um, is that there, there's so much work that is being done that maybe we don't know about and we can all feel a little bit overwhelmed. Chris and I know that we acknowledge it in our presentation that, you know, by seeing these pictures of the Netherlands or from Denmark or other cities that are, you know, jumping ahead, you know, you can start to feel really discouraged, but it's, you know, it all comes down to these were all just oftentimes small movements that snowballed. And so there's no reason that, you know, Chicago, New York, um, Vancouver, Toronto, any city can't, you know, make these small changes that become bigger. And it doesn't have to be this huge movement from the start. Um, but just to keep keep working towards it, keep believing that what you're doing is worth it. You know, it's okay to feel discouraged, but that doesn't mean that we should all um, give up because there's still work to be done. And, 
and someone somewhere will be inspired by what you're doing. Great words of advice. Yeah. Where can everybody find your amazing work online? Yeah, we are uh, seemingly ubiquitous on social media these days. Uh, <laughs> you are. <laughs> so our, our joint account is uh, Medacity, so we're at Medacity Life on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, you name it. Uh, and then I am handling social media for the Dutch Cycling Embassy, uh, which is at cycling underscore embassy, uh, again, on all four of those channels. Uh, and then Melissa is uh, social media uh, extraordinaire for <laughs> the Mobicon uh, company. Yeah, which is at Mobicon um, or at Mobicon NL on Instagram. And if anybody's interested in coming over for a tour, they should just get in contact with you? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, that's seemingly what we do these days. Not we go by that there's not uh, somebody in Delft looking for a, a coffee and a bike ride. And uh, <laughs> Like I said, we like to show them around because this place is, is uh, a lot of lessons for uh, aspiring livable cities, and uh, there's still some work to be done. And, uh look forward to uh, keeping pushing uh, not just cities around the world but uh, here in Delft to make it a better place indeed yeah well that's enough for uh, you know me to want to come over so <laughs> maybe we'll have to make that happen <laughs> well Chris and Melissa it's been absolutely a ton of fun talking with you thank you so much again for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us on Livable City yeah, thank you. Uh, I just want to say uh, the work that you're doing is absolutely inspiring and keep it up um it's making a lot of difference to a lot of people i can see that just from following you on on social media and that so just want to encourage you to keep going thanks we'll, we'll think about that when we're uh neck deep in researching and writing the next book which is <laughs> uh, basically the next 11 months of our lives is going to be uh banging this thing out but uh quite busy with our day jobs and we're hesitant about putting this book out but we know there's a uh, an appetite and an urgency uh, and a, a need to uh, put down a lot of what we experienced into words and, and uh, continue to make this case that these types of cities should not be unique to the Netherlands, uh, that they, they can and they should be built uh, elsewhere. Absolutely. Well said. We'll have to have you back on after your, your book is released. I'm really excited about that. <laughs> so. Thank you again. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Jim. Okay, bye yeah, for thanks now. Thanks so much. Oh my gosh, I had so much fun talking with Chris and Melissa. I could talk to them for hours about this, but alas, the podcast interviews are only about 60 minutes max. But more importantly than that, who's going to join me for visiting Chris and Melissa in Delft for a local bike tour? I really want to go, like tomorrow. Let me know. Maybe we can get a, a big Liverpool City group to go together and we can all meet up and experience a very livable one together while riding bicycles together. But before then, I need you to do something for me. I want you to write me an email or join the Facebook group. Again, the email address is thelivablecity at gmail.com and you can find the Facebook group under the name Livable City as well. I want you to write me there, tell the community, tell me what you're working on and how you're stuck and how we can help. This is seriously part of what this whole community is about is helping each other advocate for more liberal cities and you don't have to do it alone this is something i'm going to highlight more and more and hopefully we can get this into a huge more formal thing where we're all helping each other that's my vision at least and if you want to help me bring that about more formally let me know as well i'd love for some help 
Lastly, if you value what we're doing here with Liberal City and you want to help spread the word, one huge way that you can do that is by leaving a rating on iTunes, Google, or Spotify, wherever you listen, and also share this podcast with at least one person that you know would benefit from it and enjoy this message. I'm so grateful that all of you listen to this podcast again and again, and that some of you have shared what you think in different channels. I've got some amazing guest interviews coming up in the near future that you won't want to miss. So as always, I'll leave you with this message. Remember to first listen, learn, and then lead. We'll see you back here next time. Mm-hmm.